welcome to the John Brown University Chapel Podcast, recorded in the historic Cathedral of the Ozarks in Salem Springs, Arkansas. This week's chapel speaker was Robbie Castleman. Dr. Castleman is Professor Emerita in New Testament and Theology at John Brown University. Now, Dr. Castleman may be new to most of you here, but she's more than just a familiar friend to JBU. Dr. Castleman worked in our Bible department as a professor of biblical studies for 15 years before her retirement in 2016. So for a generation of students before you, they knew her as Dr. C, one of the most beloved professors on campus um, as students competed for a seat in her class during enrollment season. So before coming to, to John Brown, uh, Dr. Castleman worked for InterVarsity at Florida State University. and yeah, come on. And before that, Dr. Castleman was a trained nurse specialized in neurological intensive care. So we have some neurological intensive care fans out there. <laughs> she and her husband Breck moved in 2001 to Siloam where Breck took the role of senior pastor at First Pres in town. And during her time here, Dr. Castleman at JBU taught, parented, served, and wrote several books on church life, worship, the New Testament, and guiding young people into the presence of God. I've had the privilege to get to know Dr. Castleman some in my time here, and what I love, Rabbi, about you the most is this rare combination of telling you like it is, she's a straight shooter who knows how to hit the bullseye, but you are also profoundly compassionate with a tender heart. You walk away from conversations with Dr. Castleman knowing that she's really understood you, that she's really planning on encouraging you, and also you're kind of ready to get your own act in order, especially if she catches you riding across campus on your bike without a helmet. Watch out for that, really. I think what I'm trying to say is that having spent her first career as a nurse and her second two with college students, and some of that on the international stage of New Testament scholarship, Dr. Castleman has achieved this profoundly Christ-like harmony of both truth-telling and grace-giving. And here in the space today, she comes to us with a lifetime of enjoying young people and guiding them spiritually. Well, there's so much more to say and learn and enjoy. If you'd like to connect with Dr. Castleman as she only lives five minutes from campus, um, let me know and we can get you in touch with her. So, Dr. Castleman, it's a wonderful privilege to have you here to lead us today. So please join me in welcoming our beloved Professor Emeritus, Dr. Robert Castleman. Introductions like that are such a burden, you gotta try to live up to them. So, lower your expectations. Okay, thanks very much for that more than gracious um, introduction. And I wanna say something special to certain students who might be here this morning, and if I butcher it, just give me grace. <clears throat> I want to, un, Bienvenido especial a nuestra clase de español. <laughs> yes, I'm a student here at JBU, finally. And my husband and I take Spanish from Dr. Iglesias, what a saint. Um, every uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 
at nine o'clock. So I wanted to say a special hello to our class. Now, I need you to pay attention today because I have to think of this as a classroom and not just a big sanctuary with lots of people. So uh, pay attention. I want you to raise your hand real high if you are a big brother or a big sister. If you're the oldest sibling in your family. Oh yeah, yeah, there you go. All the stats prove it, yeah, okay. Now, I want you to raise your hand even higher because you have to do that to get noticed if you are considered the little brother or the little sister in your family. Yeah, all right. That was your moment in glory. Yeah. Now, if you're an only child, raise your hand. All right. Dorm life is tough, huh? Yeah. The only reason I'm here to tell you, now write this down, especially if you're an only child. Um, you know, when you came along, you turned out so well that your parents looked at each other and said, let's just stop while we're ahead. All right? All right, now if you're taking New Testament survey this semester, raise your hand. Woo, woo, hi, woo. Okay, well you all need this then. It was gonna help your GPA, but you know, okay. Now, I want you to get out your Bibles, if you brought one, and if you didn't, explain that to Jesus, and be ready to follow me. I want to talk to you today about the life of John, about the life of John. John, of course, we all know, started out as a Galilean fisherman with his big brother, James, and followed Jesus to become a disciple of Rabbi Jesus. But this morning, I want to go deeper, a lot deeper, into John's life as it walks through the New Testament. Now, if you've had New Testament survey, you know that the accounts of the gospel were written at particular times for a key audience that gives each account of the gospel, one gospel, four accounts, a distinct voice in what becomes one story, one gospel, told in four-part harmony for the church's work, witness, worship, and wisdom in this world. Scripture isn't just God-breathed through the authors of the biblical canon. Scripture is God-breathed into our lives to shape our lives and help us to be more like Jesus every day, every time we open our Bible and read. Scripture is what we must know, read, listen to, and never forget, and never neglect. At the direction of the Holy Spirit, God breathed through his messengers the story of Jesus and the good news of God's salvation. Luke and Matthew follow Mark's basic outline, and all three zero in on the last week of Jesus' life of earthly ministry. And that one week, the week that starts with Palm Sunday and ends at the resurrection, takes up nearly half of Mark, Luke, and Matthew. In Mark, the scribe for the Apostle Peter, the basic outline for the gospel of Jesus is set and identified as the Son of God. He says that in the first verse. He is in your face just like you know Peter would be. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do I have your attention? That's what he's doing. Peter always seemed to raise his hand. He's the kid that sits in the front row, usually gets A's, 
um, and likes to answer questions. He skips Christmas altogether, starts with the beginning of Jesus' public ministry through the baptism of John. And then 10 or 15 years after Mark, Luke presents Jesus as the savior of the whole world, right? For Gentiles and all outsiders much like himself. Luke was a Gentile by birth, but embraced the Jewish religion and ended up believing in Messiah Jesus and traveled with Paul. Luke keeps Christmas in his account, but he tells the background and birth story of Jesus through the experience of women and outsiders, just like himself. Now, 10 years after that, after the fall of Jerusalem in, fill in the blank, what year? Uh, yeah, there you go, just like Peter, very nice. 70 AD, Matthew reassures his audience that the Jews were his first audience and they felt hopeless after the loss of Jerusalem, their entire religious system that was focused around it. It was the geographical center of the Jewish faith. And Matthew says, hey, 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 all the way through his gospel, we might have lost our place, but a place doesn't save you, a person does. We have not been abandoned by that person, the Messiah of Israel, Jesus. Matthew keeps Christmas, but tells the story surrounding the birth of Jesus in a very Jewish way, through the stories of Joseph's experience and men in the early hardships of Jesus' earthly life. Now, I want you to look at this picture. Yeah, that's up there. This is Rubens, it's known as the Four Evangelists. If you ever go to Berlin, you have to see it in um, the Sanssouci Museum. And here are the three disciples, Mark, Luke, and Matthew. Mark is sitting on a lion, his symbol. Luke is sitting on an ox, his artistic symbol since early Christian art. And Matthew is gazing up at an angel. And where's John? John is off to the side, not sitting at the table. He's not synoptic. He doesn't follow Mark's outline. And he's not writing all together. <laughs> uh, he's unbearded, you notice that? He's always the only disciple in Christian art that never has a beard. And he's looking up at an eagle that is very hard to see, and that's his sign. I do wish that Reuben had made the golden eagle, I'm sure that's what it is, more clear up there in that shadowy, dark place. But John knew shadowy, dark places where the eagles dwelt. So, let's look at John. Why is he off to the side, not writing within a short, like Mark, Luke, and Matthew did, a short, a short 30 years from the time of their experience with Jesus' life and ministry. Why did God the Holy Spirit wait to prompt John to write his account of the gospel sooner? Because it wasn't until the last decade of the first century that John could write of those days with Jesus and his big brother James and the other disciples when he was a teenager, younger than most of you in this room. Those were the days. And you know that 90% uh, of John is brand new stuff. I'm so glad 
he got around to writing it. And it's new stuff, it's not in Mark, Luke, or Matthew. And much of this is because Jesus was the only disciple who tells us stories that no one else was able to see because they weren't just by themselves with Jesus. He had to stay with Jesus. Now just think about it. John 3, right? We've already looked at John 3 in the chapel series. Nick at night is what I call it. And Nick comes and, he's, and he has this incredible teaching from Jesus. You know, you must be of God because no one can do what you do. But you must, and then Jesus says, you must be born again, born from above. And why is that teaching only in John? That's a pretty pivotal teaching. It's like a lot of your grandparents' favorite verses right there, right? Think about it. Nicodemus came at night, right? Wanted a private talk with Jesus. No one else could be around but Jesus. And this young kid, John, whose older brother probably wouldn't let him go with him and the other guys out on Jerusalem that night. So John sat there, possibly sulking. You know how you were in junior high and high school. You can't go sulk. So there's John, probably sulking, possibly sulking, but listening. And when John's time to write became God's time for him to write, he remembered when Nicodemus came to talk to Jesus. Another story, John 4, you've already been there, woman at the well in Samaria, right? And it starts off by saying Jesus had to go to Samaria, through Samaria. No, he didn't. Mr. and Mrs. Zebedee, the parents of James and John, probably did what most Galileans did every year to go to the festivals in Jerusalem. They went, hello, around Samaria. Because it's not a good neighborhood. We're not going there. It's a dirty place to be avoided. Especially on the way to Passover, because we can't contaminate ourselves before the Passover. Or we won't get in and we won't be able to blah, 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 blah. So what happens? Jesus gets tired on this journey through nasty Samaria, and sends the disciples into a Samaritan village. Go, go get us something to eat. I'm just gonna stay here. And John hops up, yeah, okay, I'm gonna see nasty stuff. And John hops up, gets all excited to go into the forbidden city, right? And then big brother James has to go and open his mouth and say something like, no way, uh-uh, sit back down. You stay here with Jesus again. Don't touch anything. Don't talk to anybody. Mom would kill me if she thought I let you go into a Samaritan town. And off the rest of them went. And John, possibly sulking again, sat there bored out of his mind until this incredible Samaritan woman walked up. Jesus talks to her, drank water she gave him, from this ancient well, turns around, offers her water that moves, living water, that will end her lifelong thirst for water that moves within her. And John heard every word of grace and truth this woman needed to hear. So why did it take so long for John to be ready to revisit these stories? Because it was probably too painful for John to remember those days and sit down and write. He wasn't ready until God made him ready. And it was nearly 50 years later. Of course, 
Jesus called John as a young team to follow him, partly because God needed an evangelist that would live long enough to address the second generation of the church that had new questions and lived in new circumstances. But there's a lot more to why John wasn't ready to write it all down sooner. John wasn't ready to write this down until after his exile to Patmos, Rocky Patmos, Baron Patmos, for his faithful leadership of the church in Western Asia Minor. And the Spirit didn't lead John to his own account of the good news until after the revelation of the risen Lord on Patmos, not until he began to understand the hidden glory of things he had experienced way back when. When an infertile woman divorced five times, woman at the well, could give birth instead to a uh, Samaritan village, or the glory that a man born blind could see clearly, or the unveiling of glory at Bethany when a dead friend of theirs came out of his own tomb when Jesus called him by name Lazarus. Come on out. But more importantly, for a long, long time, it was too painful for John to write about the good news that he believed. But he had a hard time feeling at times that it was really good. How come God was so good and powerful and loving to some, but it seemed not to others, not at all, and not to his big brother, James? John looked up to his big brother his whole life, as aggravating as that might be at times. How many times do we read in the gospel accounts, Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, and John? Turn to Acts 12. Look at the first two verses in Acts 12. It's gonna be the last time we find James and John in the same passage. Verses one and two of Acts 12 read like this. Comes right out of the blue. About that time, King Herod laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. He had James, the brother of John, killed with a sword. No warning, no reason given, no charges, no nothing. Just that Herod Agrippa I wanted to keep his, this new Jewish Gentile religion in check to keep his job and good relationships with Rome going. You need to remember that John's big brother James was the very first of Jesus' central disciples to die, except for Judas, of course, by his own hand. But here in Acts, James gets a whopping two verses and is never heard from again. Let me ask you something, if you were John, what might have gone through your mind? What would you feel when this happened to your brother? How many of you, as you're looking at your Bibles, they have you know, like these false headings that they put in, and in some of your Bibles, it's gonna say, Peter's miraculous escape from prison, over verses one and two. What would you feel if you were John? Especially, Acts 12 does keep right on going and mentions the imprisonment of Peter in verse three and how the whole church prayed for Peter in verse five and then the whole Peter's miraculous escape from prison complete with, hello, 
you guys know the story. Angelic visitor, chains that fall off, doors that just open up, guards who fall asleep at the right time. And the angel even tells Peter to put your shoes on, wrap a belt around your waist, and don't forget your coat, it's chilly out. And the angel leaves Peter safe and sound and rescued from the hands of Herod Agrippa the first. Verse 11. And then Peter, the escapee, goes to the house in Jerusalem where the church and its leaders routinely gathered, and he tells them every little detail, all the details I just gave you. Verse 17, and very likely John was there and listening to every word like he used to do. If John was like us, and he was, he had a lot of questions. Why, 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 why? Why not? Did God know something about my brother so that he lost his head and Peter got to keep his? And his belt, and his coat, and his shoes? Was Peter more important somehow than James? Did my brother mess up in some way that made him ineligible for rescue? Lord, why, why? Why Peter and not my brother too? Two things are remarkable about this dynamic that helped shape John's adult life. Faith and long-term ministry that's revealed in the New Testament do not give a hint, not once, that John lost his faith in Jesus because of his unanswered questions and his disappointment with God. And number two, God was watching John even when he was sulking or bored or asking hard questions. John, God listened to John's unspoken questions, his confusion, his heartbreak over James, his big brother's death. And when it was John's time to tell his story of following Jesus, it was God's time to finally answer questions that John had asked and wondered about for a long time. And it all began on that rocky island of Patmos where John, now quite elderly, just about 50 years after the death of his brother, during the reign of Herod Agrippa I, who died in AD 44, Herod's death is graphically recorded as the next thing in Acts 12, as well as detailed extra-biblical accounts, early church letters and things like that. And the death of Herod Agrippa I in the New Testament is how the entire New Testament is dated backwards and forwards because it was so notorious at the time. It's kind of like 9-11. Anyway, John says, I was on Patmos and in the spirit. Verses nine and 10, look at uh, Revelation chapter one. I forgot to tell you to go there. When the time came for him to write, the revelation to John begins in exquisite detail. It was a Sunday, the Lord's day, and the Jesus who revealed himself to John on Patmos told him, now write this down, write what you see. And he did. But the first thing John saw was Jesus. And, the, and he was ascended and glorified in such a way that it made John faint. John fainted at this look of Jesus. Now you gotta remember that Peter, James, and John, right, were the three disciples that had seen the transfiguration. This was not that. Been there, saw that, whoa, this is the transfig on steroids. This was not, in fact, 
When John writes his account of the gospel after leaving Patmos, he doesn't even include the transfiguration in his account, right? But here's a bit how John writes about this Jesus in Revelation chapter one, verse 13 and following. I'm gonna hop, skip, and jump through it. I saw one like the son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his step. His hair and head and hair were white, as white as wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze, and his voice was the sound, uh, like the sound of many waters. He held seven stars in his right hand, and his face was like the shining of the sun with full force. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But then listen to this. Remember that right hand with the seven stars? But this great one placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. Fear not. I got this. I am the living one, he says, forever and I hold the keys to both death and life. I'm the one that if I chose to, could answer all your questions about death and life. Now you can read all that in the Revelation to John, but I wanna move ahead in the series of visions that John records and point out one little verse that tells what John needed to know the most to answer his questions about the death of his big brother James. Turn to chapter 21, verse four. He's been seeing thrones and all kinds of things and he says, after seeing thrones and the saints and those seated there with the great judges, John writes, I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus and for the word of God, they were faithful. Now, there's no explanation to what John means when he saw souls, but John did. And I think at that moment, he saw his brothers. He knew James was safe. He knew that he had been faithful to the end. John still didn't know why, but he knew his brother didn't mess up. God was faithful to both of them. John finishes his work on Patmos as God directed. He returns to his work to shepherd the Lord's congregation of believers in Northwest Asia Minor. And one afternoon he sits down at the direction of the Holy Spirit and rests upon him in a certain way and takes up his pen and he begins to write. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Him was life, and the life was the light that shines in the darkness and is not overcome. This Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Finally, John could write the story of being with Jesus and with James and not wonder, but just write of those days together and the times he had to stay behind and it was just him and Jesus for whoever dropped by. Beloved students and staff and 
administration that's here today. Jesus knows your questions, your heartbreaks, your disappointments with God because we don't understand and we just wanna know why. And all those whys are particular in your life. Why my mom had to get fill in the blank. Why my brother, we're full of whys. I've known times like this, I lack the time to tell you all of my why stories that have yet to be answered from the murder of a friend to the downing of an airplane with my best friend's husband aboard. But I do know that at my friend's funeral, I sang because he lives, not because I felt it. I was still mad at God that Edna died. Edna was murdered. But the chorus goes like this, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. John testified that the light cannot be overcome by any darkness because he knew dark days that were no match as difficult as they were for the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you right now, probably a lot of you, are where John was in Acts 12. Huh, what? Why him and not me? Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to read John on your knees. Read John in times of heartbreak and unanswered questions. Read John in times of disappointment and despair. Catch glimpses of hidden glory in his writings. And when the time is God's time for you, you'll remember and rejoice that God had this thing all along. And that darkness will not overcome who he is in you. The incarnate word for us from beginning to end. Let's pray. We have but one prayer right now, Lord Jesus, and that is come soon, come soon. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the John Brown University Chapel Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, and we'd love it if you'd leave us a review.